We're going to be in Luke chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 33 through 36 this morning. But before we get started, I wanted to introduce myself. And uh, it's truly an honor to be worshiping with you this morning through the preaching of God's Word. For those of you that I haven't got the pleasure to meet, um, I'm Ryan Rust, and I have been serving as the ministry intern here for the past few months. It's been an honor to learn from godly, the godly men that lead us so faithfully. Pastor Travis, who leads our youth. Pastor Allen, who leads us in worship. And of course, Pastor Jason. I don't think it can be said enough how truly blessed we are to be led by such honorable, God-fearing men. This day is particularly special for me because, in a lot of ways, this church has changed my life. And not just my life, but this church has probably changed the trajectory of my entire family. This place has served my family, cried with my family, grown with my family, and ultimately made my family love Jesus more. I can honestly say, I don't know if I would be where I am today if it were not for First Baptist Elgin. You see, I have four generations of my family in this church. If you're counting my babies, Ezra and Nellie, who you've probably seen running around here. My grandfather, Ed, right there front and center, is a deacon here. And he and my grandma, Carolyn, have been faithful members here for around six years. My parents, Randy, who just got done playing guitar, and my mother, Virginia, who is an all-around service queen, and everyone that knows her knows exactly what I mean. (laughs) She lives to serve. Um, They have been members here for two years. Oh, perfect timing. And my beautiful, talented wife uh, and I, that's Andrea, and we have been members here for just over a year. And the love we have experienced as a family through this body is unmatched. And honestly, I can't even explain the impact all of you have had on us. So needless to say, this church has a big place in my heart. And it truly is surreal to be standing here before you, opening up the Word of God to teach the body of Christ. So truly, thank you for allowing me this honor. But before we get too teary-eyed, let's uh, dig into the Word of God. We're going to be continuing our series in Luke in a... Like I said before, we're going to be in chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Would you uh, bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can come before you boldly and worship you, and that you are faithful to teach us. God, we did not come here today to hear from man, but we came to hear from you. So we pray that in this moment you would send your spirit and do just that, that you would illuminate in us your truth, that you would glorify yourself through my words. Father, I pray that you would use me to help make your son more known. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. We pray all this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. In verse 33, the Word of God says, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden. 
or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. I have uh, three observations that I want us to see this morning. And the first one is true faith in Jesus must be on display for all to see. And I get this from verse 33. I'm going to read it again. It says, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. This is, I think, one of those statements that is very familiar to us in the church. Jesus often refers to light when talking about his love or his disciples. In a very similar verse to ours today, that is a very popular section of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus states, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. This is what I like to call a bumper sticker verse, because it's everywhere. We have it on shirts, we have it on mugs. I think our culture knows that Christians are supposed to be light. I mean, even Ronald Reagan, in one of his most popular speeches, alluded to a shining city on a hill being a light to the world. It is evident that Christians understand that they are to be light to the world, but what does this actually look like? I want, us to, I want us to see in our text, verse 33 states that the purpose of light is to be a source of guidance. That's why it's pointless for it to be hidden. And I don't think this is some earth-shattering science Jesus is laying out for us. Because it's rather obvious to anyone who owns a flashlight what the purpose of light is. We use the flashlight to guide us through dark places and illuminate what we can't see. Unless you're my three-year-old son who just likes to flash it in his grandparents' faces for some reason. But thankfully for our first century readers, there was no such thing as flashlights. So Jesus uses the comparison of a lamp. And Jesus is saying that he is the light, that he is the lamp. So you can just circle that word lamp there in 33 and just write Jesus. Jesus is saying that he alone is what illuminates the dark places in our world. He continues stating, what use is it to have a lamp in a place that is hidden? That doesn't make much sense, right? Let's think about the implications for us in this comparison. What use is it to have Jesus to experience his love, to experience the abundant blessing of being in relationship with him and keeping it to ourselves? Jesus is saying that we do the complete opposite. He says to put the lamp up on a stand for everyone to see. You see, the child of God is meant to shine. And we must put the love we have experienced in Jesus on display so that anyone and everyone that looks at our lives sees the light of Jesus. 
And I want to show us two practical ways that I think that we can display our faith in Jesus. And the first way is by our good works. And I want to be clear to distinguish what I mean and what I don't mean when I say good works. Because there is a way to serve others that is not glorifying to God. And we must be a people that resist this temptation. The primary way scripture talks about this kind of service is to serve to be noticed by men instead of serving for God alone. Also, by good works, I by no means want to sound like we are saved by our works. Rather, the way scripture talks about works is that if we are saved, then we will have good works. James 2.17 says, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, there's been much debate, and I mean centuries of debate, over this very text, and we don't have time to dive into all the details of the relationship between faith and works. But for our purposes today, which, remember, is displaying the light of Jesus in our life, it is not simply enough to just have faith. And since the text is talking about being a light so that all can see, I think we can conclude that this is specifically talking about serving those outside of the body of Christ not serving the body of Christ, although that is very much needed and also commanded in Scripture. And I want everyone to know that I'm preaching more to myself here than anyone because I know in my sinful nature, the last thing I want to do is serve others. I confess I'm terrible at this. Like, the only time... I actually serve is when my wife drags me out of the house, and I mean, literally drags me. I mean, if you give me a Bible study or a book study, I'll be the first one in line. If you want to have meaningless, hour-long debates on theology or doctrinal disputes, then I'm your man. But I have to constantly be reminded that if I claim to have faith in Jesus, yet refuse to serve and love the neglected, then something is terribly wrong with my faith. You see... Our good works, according to James, completes our faith. And I can't even really explain what that fully means, but as our pastor always teaches, we must embrace the tension of Scripture. And I know for some of us, serving comes natural, which honestly we should praise God for that, because when we properly serve those that are marginalized in society, we are displaying what true Christianity is and being light for a dark world to see. James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We're going to come back to the second half of that verse a little later, but what I want us to see is that religion that is pleasing to our God is looking after the ones that society deems useless. The widow and orphan. In our culture, I think you could add the poor or the uneducated or those that can't speak English and sadly even children, especially the unborn. And I really think this list could go on. There's numerous other groups of people who are viewed as less than and marginalized. And what James is saying is serving these people to look after them It implies more than just meeting their needs, but actually investing in their lives, becoming friends with them, sharing meals with them, 
this type of lifestyle is, I think, the best way we can display the light. Oh, thanks, buddy. The light of Jesus to the world. And I want to be perfectly clear. I don't think we have any excuse in this church not to serve. And me being a sinner, though, I'm full of excuses, you know. And the excuse I most often get sounds something like, well, I don't know anybody in these communities. I don't know how to serve. I don't know where to start. And this is typically when I hear the voice of my sweet mother saying something like, well, that's funny, Ryan, because I just started Elgin Ignite, which is our church partnership with a local elementary school just right down the street. And we have kids lined up out the door that you can come and mentor. Again, we have no excuse at this church not to serve. I mean, what is our mission statement? It's love God, love people, and do something. So I think we should be thankful for the many ministries that give us a chance to be light. In a month, we're having our annual bags of blessing, or less than a month, somewhere around a month, where we get the opportunity to be a light to a big segment of the population that lives in our town. We can feed and bless those that need to be reminded of God's blessing. And let's just not stop there. Let's actually sit down and rub elbows at the dinner table with these folks. Let's become invested in their lives. Let their burdens become ours. Because this is how we display light to a broken and dark world. A second way to display our faith in Jesus to the world is by Loving others how Christ loves us. And I think this sounds simple, but in practice, this is one of the hardest things to do, right? Like, first we have to think about how does Jesus love us? Is he angry? Is he impatient? Is he mean? Is he insensitive? Or how many of us, myself included, act act on social media, especially this past couple of weeks? Um, No. I think Jesus, right, is the exact opposite of this. He is loving, he is patient, he is sensitive to our genuine concerns. He's everything we're just saying about. I ran across an interview this week that struck me. It's about a, it was about a woman who was popular in some evangelical circles who was a former homosexual English professor who taught and spent her entire life devoted to LGBT studies. And I think this lifestyle she was living sounds just about the darkest thing for most conservative Christians to encounter. And having just graduated from a secular university, I can attest that some of the darkest places in our culture are on university campuses. But this woman would become saved, repent of her lifestyle, and completely give her life to Jesus. And do you know what her primary reason she gave for giving her life to God? She said, and I quote, I fell in love with Jesus and his church because of the way Christians could stand the way Christians could weep, and the way Christians would walk and be gracious with me. How amazing is that? Because the body of Christ was loving this woman as Christ loved them, she experienced the love of Jesus. And this should be the aim of our stories as well. We can't be a people that run from the darkest parts of our culture when we are the only light to offer that culture. Listen, there is every competing worldview under the sun in our current culture, and I don't care if it's Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, secularism, or any other ism you can think of, 
None of it will be a light to a dark, dark world. In fact, these worldviews will just push people further and further away from the truth and light of Christ. So Christians, we have to be on the front lines in these dark places because we are the only lamp that can illuminate this world. And we must do this in community. We have to do this displaying wisdom and grace because this type of lifestyle, being light to the dark crevices of our society, requires vulnerability and it will result in pain. We will encounter people we genuinely are repulsed by. And guess what Jesus calls us to? Jesus calls us to love these people. The second observation I want want us to see is we have a responsibility to guard ourselves from evil thoughts and worldviews so that the light in us does not become dark. And we see this in verses 34 and 35, which state, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Jesus shifts his teaching here to talk about how the light in believers can shine by comparing the eyes as the lamp of the body. And I think this can be a rather confusing uh, part of the text, but what I think Jesus is saying is that the eye is the way in which we perceive the world. And I'm going to call this our world view. So what we intake, what our perception is, comes through the eyes, right? And I'm, we see this in our senses. Our eye gives us sight so we can perceive the world around us. Jesus is saying, not only does the eye do this for us physically, but in a very real way, the eye does this for us spiritually. Another way to say this is our worldview is shaped by what we intake. So Jesus states that there is a way for the child of God to be full of light, but because of what they intake through their eyes, their light becomes darkness. And that is like a sobering truth Jesus is giving us. The text says right here, when your eyes are bad, your body is full of darkness. Another definition for the word bad here is evil. So literally, when our eyes are evil, then we will be full of darkness. But I think that needs some explaining. So what does it really mean for our eyes to be evil? I think another way to say this is when our attention is focused on evil. Jesus is saying that we have a responsibility for our spiritual condition. We must make sure that we do not be consumed by the evil around us. And this is not just abstaining from rated R movies or music with cussing in it, although I think that should and could be a part of it. I mean... I think we all have different temptations that we must blot out of our lives. Personally, I've struggled with substance abuse a large part of my adult life, going back to high school and early parts of college. So there are certain things that I must avoid that would seem weird to people, like just certain commercials of beer being poured into a cup. They enter my eyes and cause a trigger of the flesh that must be confessed. Or sometimes just seeing prescription bottles in a medicine cabinet brings back memories that I must blot out before they become corrupting thoughts 
that turn into actions. And I think we all have these sorts of triggers of the flesh that when our eyes see them, it causes the light in us to begin to dim, right? And we all are different, so we should not judge what others do and don't abstain from if it is not prohibited in Scripture. But this text is also, I think, talking about something more than just avoiding sin. I think, I think there is a big danger in a text like this to read it and never view, you, never view yourself as someone whose eyes are bad. Unless you're like standing on the corner selling drugs, which from the looks of it, I don't think any of us are, then it's hard to view the things we believe and do as evil. But I'd argue that there are competing worldviews, some of which appear good, that we encounter every day that are vying for our affections. And these worldviews can ultimately lead to our destruction if we do not turn to Jesus. And I think we all are tempted by what I'm going to call having double vision, which is, or being cross-eyed, which is looking at the things of the world and looking at the things of God. And I want to, I want to point our attention to three examples in the Old Testament of individuals that had this double vision, that had one eye in the light and one eye in the dark, which led to their ultimate demise. And this is Lot, Samson, and King Saul. And I want us to see specifically what role this double vision had in the fall of these men. So first, Lot began as a pilgrim with his uncle Abraham and ended up as a drunkard committing in a cave committing unthinkable sins. And his fall came primarily because he had eyes looking both ways, to light and to dark. Scripture states that he yielded to the lust of his eyes. Samson. Samson was a great warrior with immeasurable strength who led the Israelites for 20 years until he yielded to the lust of the flesh and was deceived by Delilah. He had one eye on God's kingdom and one eye on his lustful passions. The Philistines, who were the Israelites' sworn sworn enemies in the Old Testament, in some sort of tragic irony, eventually gouged out Samson's eyes, which I didn't learn till this week. I didn't hear that in the Sunday school versions. But King, King Saul began as a humble leader, but his pride led him to a witch's cave where he fled in fear and eventually died by suicide on the battlefield. Because he would not humble himself and obey the will of God. You see, he had one eye on the kingdom and one eye on the pride of his own kingdom. And I think these are sobering examples of the danger of having this double vision. But there is a way to combat this tendency towards double vision. And it calls for us to initiate and act to make sure we have a proper view of Jesus. Verse 35 has the phrase, see to it then, which if you're the underlining type, I would definitely suggest underlining that phrase because I think that is the key to this whole passage. In the English world, we call this a present imperative. And all this really means is that this is a command that must be followed by believers throughout history 
including today and tomorrow. Another translation of this is to be on watch. So, quite literally, we must be on watch that the light in us does not become darkness. This implies there is a responsibility on behalf of the believer to have the proper worldview of Christ. And the primary way we do this is by reading the scriptures. I want us to see three passages where the, the scriptures talk about the light of God's word. And we're going to start in Psalm 119, 105, which says, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. In verse 130, it says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Proverbs 6.23 says, For this command is a lamp. This teaching is a light. Referring to God's word. So we can clearly see that the word of God gives light and understanding of the person and work of Christ. And not just the red letters, although those are a great place to start. But the whole Bible, from the first word to the last word, is pointing to Jesus. This is why our worldview must be shaped by what the whole of Scripture says. It's not, it's not enough just to know single verses from different books. But we must know the narratives, the arcs, the stories of Scripture, and what they reveal about Jesus. That is why the Old Testament is not useless for us as New Covenant believers. Because those stories are pointing, pointing towards Jesus. So when we read them, we gain a fuller understanding of Jesus, and we ensure that our eyes are good and healthy. There is nothing, and I mean there is nothing more beneficial to the Christian than spending time in the Word of God. This is how we gain a fuller understanding of the person and work of Christ. Like, I have never heard a Christian say that they spent too much time in the Word. It's just not something I hear walking around the halls here. I don't hear like, oh, I wish I didn't spend those two hours reading the Bible. And that's specifically because every time we are in the Word, we're having a very real encounter with the living God who created the universe. And the message this God wants us to know through his Word always points to his Son, Jesus. And if we have a proper understanding, a proper perception of Jesus then our eyes will be healthy and our lives will be full of light. And I think it's fundamental. This must be our aim so we can shine bright for this broken world to see. And the final point that I want us to see in the text. When we are diligent to walk in the light, Jesus is faithful to illuminate our lives. We see this in verse 36, which says, Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. Jesus ends his teaching on an extremely hopeful note. And honestly, thank God that Jesus is the faithful one, right? I mean, Jesus says, when we are obedient to growing in him and our body possesses light, then we will be a spiritually healthy person, shining bright for all to see. Listen to the promise in verse 36. 
Again, if you are an underliner, please underline this. Jesus says, it will be. There is no maybe or perhaps or sometimes, but we will be completely full of light, being a lamp to the dark, solely because we take the magnifying glass off of ourselves and we put that on Jesus, right? You see, Jesus is the faithful one to illuminate our lives. But one last question I think we need to answer is, what does it mean to be walking in the light? And we covered a little bit, a little bit of this earlier, but I think the main evidence of a Christian who's walking in the light, or another way to say this is a, a spiritually healthy person, is if you're able to receive instruction and are guided by God's teaching and his word. This is why community is essential to the child of God. We must, and I stress, we must have godly people around us to correct us when we're wrong and to guide us in the way of the truth. We must also be receptive to this kind of teaching, right? It doesn't do any good to be in biblical community if you refuse to listen to that community. You see, left to ourselves, we are prone to wander from the truths of God, which, as we learned before, is how the light in us becomes dark. So we need to fight, we need to give up our comforts, and we need to intentionally seek out time to be in fellowship with fellow believers so that we can be a people marked by healthy spiritual lives. And the result, as Jesus promised, is we will be completely lighted for all to see. The second sign that we are walking in the light is if we are guided by God's teaching. And this means first that we have to know God's teaching, which requires a reading and understanding of his word, which we talked about earlier, but also we must then apply what that word says to our lives. And this is really the hard part. I mean, to be guided by God's word means we have to be a people that are marked by the revealed characteristics of God. And this means that his desires start to become our desires. His thoughts become our daily thoughts. And eventually his ways become our ways. You see, spiritual health is marked by a person that is not only growing in their knowledge of God, but also that they're submitting their life and is guided by his very word. And again, I want to stress, and if this is the only thing you hear today, I hope it's this. Jesus is faithful. He is faithful to shine brightly in our lives. He is faithful to illuminate the dark places in this world, including ourselves. You see the freedom in that? It's not on us to change the world. Like, we cannot change Elgin, Texas in our own power. Rather, Jesus will be the lamp that shines through us when we are watchful that only light enters through our eyes. Finally, the most comforting, freeing thing that I think we can end on is this. There is coming a day when there will be no need for us to be a light to illuminate the dark world. There is coming a day where everything will be made right and all of us in Christ will worship God on his throne. 
And there is coming a day when the kingdom of God will finally be fulfilled. I want us to see how Revelation 22, which is the last chapter of the Bible, describes it. And focus on what he says about light. The word of God says, No longer will there be any curse or darkness. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So church, let's take heart, and let's have faith in these dark times here on earth. Let's be diligent workers here and now, because one day, and I, I truly mean this, one day we will be bathing in the light of glory forever. We will be reigning with our King for eternity. Let's pray. God, Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that it can speak to us here and now, and that every word of it is true and perfect. Um, God, I pray that we, as Elgin First Baptist, as your body, would be a light to everybody that would come and encounter with us, whether it's at work, whether it's at school. No matter where we are, I want, Father, I pray that you would just illuminate our lives so more people will get to experience your love. And Father, I pray that you would, I pray that you would transform Elgin through this church just through your children, God. I pray that the light of Jesus would just be on display. Father, I pray that you would guard our hearts, that you would guard our eyes so we would rid ourselves of evil thoughts and evil worldviews that are contrary to your will. Father, I pray that ultimately, I pray that we would just trust in Jesus. Father, I pray that we would trust that he is faithful one, and that one day we will be with him, reigning forever. Father, pray that you help us. Let that be our heartbeat. Let that be the reminder of every moment of our day that one day we are going to be shining bright as the sun with Jesus in eternity. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.